All right, let's get into Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start by reading. Uh, I will have the text this morning on the monitors. So if you don't have the ESV or you would like to just read along on the monitor, you may do so. Uh, This morning, rather than taking an entire chapter, I'm going to just take the first 18 verses. So we're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're gonna be looking at verses one through 18 this morning. And I'm particularly excited today and I feel like the Lord has an impartation for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. A really important statement there. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. There's another important verse. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Lord, we are humbled when we consider even just a few of these words that God, once for all time, you have made perfect those who are being sanctified. Father, would you help us to understand this morning by your spirit of revelation, the truth of these words, but also the significance as it applies to our lives? Would you help us, Lord, to massage it deep into our minds and into our beings? Would you help us, Lord, this morning by your grace, to bring into conformity our wills, our emotions, our minds, our bodies, all under Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Father, thank you for the written word of God, which is life and truth, and we thank you for the spirit of God, which brings illumination to this life. In the name of Jesus, we say together, amen. One of the habits I would say that we have to work against sometimes as we study a book in the way that we have, where we kind of expositorily go through a book and it's extended over a period of times, is, to, is that we can sometimes forget what has previously been stated. And a little bit of, if you will, the, the logic foundation that the writer has been building over the course of chapter after chapter after chapter. But sometimes we just kind of take these verses and we compartmentalize them and we forget the, both the main theme of where the writer is going, but also the flow by which he gets to where he's going, if that makes sense. And I think that we've done pretty well to remind ourselves throughout this time what the main trajectory of Hebrews has been, the warning not to turn back to the old covenant, not to turn back to seeking righteousness through an old system of works, which of course we have heard so many times by now that it cannot accomplish perfection in the sense of sanctification and redemption. It was only, as I said last week, a system of purification of the external. But now, through Jesus Christ, as the, as the writer tells us again so many times, now through Jesus Christ, we have been perfected, as verse 14 tells us, once for all, through the single sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And we are to stay by his grace, much like Paul's uh, correction to the church in Galatia, having begun in such a way you have now resorted back to the old system. The call for us as believers today on this side of the cross is to stay in the covenant of grace and to continue in faith and not to fall back into a system of works because those works never purify fully. They only cover, right? They don't wash away. But we have been given this great new covenant by a great high priest. And so I found myself this week as I was studying chapter 10, just kind of consumed with this idea that maybe it is more so me, I don't know about you, but I have been tending to compartmentalize. And so what I did this week is something a little bit different. I went back to the very beginning and I read all the way through chapter one through chapter 10, finishing with verse 18 where I finished here this morning. And I felt like this wasn't so much of a warning as much as it was just as an observation to say, let's be aware as we study in such a way of keeping the main thing in focus before our hearts and minds, amen? So as we move through, it's like, what is this? how does this line up with the other things that have been said? Because as I used the metaphor a couple of weeks ago, he's building, a, he's building a wall, if you will, not to keep things out, but just in terms of that picture of like brick by brick by brick, he's building something that's bigger and that when completed is significant to our lives. And maybe in the wall context, it's a guard, it's a safeguard, it's a surety unto our own hearts. And I was thinking, there's not any other book save for maybe like a textbook that you would study through where we do such a thing. Like who picks up Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and reads like five paragraphs at a time and just goes, yeah, that's great. That's a real meaty, right? Or Pride and Prejudice over the course of a year and a half, just reading like half a chapter at a time. No, we don't do it that way. But with the Bible, because we're so intent on mining a vein of truth, 
we do it in such a way, and I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying let's be aware of how we read the word of God. And so as I went back and as I read through one through 10, you know, something really wonderful happened. The, what began to be highlighted to my awareness was everything that the writer of Hebrews speaks of that God has done. And that's not a really profound statement as much as it is when they begin to look at each one, one after the other, after the other. What I decided to do actually is I took a highlighter and I just highlighted every single place where it says that God has done this or God enacted something upon or through Jesus Christ and I highlighted it. And what I found interestingly subsequently to that is that oftentimes following what God has done is a statement about the effect that it has had on us as individuals. And so I began to highlight that on its own, just to show all the ways. And so I just wanna read these to you guys. And I, I began to put together in my mind, and it struck me, and, and don't, you know, I'm not good with my illustrations quite yet. I'm getting better. So, oh, I'm sorry, I'm great with my illustrations. This one might fall short. But I was thinking of it this way. It, okay, in, in Newton's third law of motion, right, what we have is that with every action, there's a subsequent and equal reaction, okay? And I was thinking of, in light of like this kind of divine God's third law of sovereign motion, okay? We'll just, we'll call it that. That flows off the tongue, right? God's third law of sovereign motion. That with every action of God in, towards, and through Christ, there is an equal reaction towards us as his children, towards us as his new creation. And when I began to look at it that way, it became profoundly encouraging to my heart. It's like God did this, and the result of that was towards us. And I wanna read some of these to you guys today just as a means of encouraging your hearts and then settling on one which is gonna thrust us through the remainder. Jesus suffered death so that he would taste death for everyone. These are all out of Hebrews. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Jesus suffered death so that he would taste death for everyone. He does, we benefit. That's the equation. Jesus suffered death so that he would destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver those who were subject to his slavery. I want you to wrap your hearts and minds around this as I say, read them to you. This is what Christ has done for you. He suffered in temptation so that we who are tempted would have help, Hebrews says. He has become faithful, he has become a faithful son over God's house so that we as his house, as the writer of Hebrews calls us, would hold fast in faith, it says. He's gone into the most holy place as a forerunner so that we would have him as a sure and steadfast anchor of hope. He has gone into the most holy place so that we would have eternal redemption, it says elsewhere. Jesus lives to make intercession for us before the Father so that we can draw near to him. He continues forever by his indestructible life, the writer says, so that we are saved to what? Do you remember? The uttermost. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that we who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance. He has offered his body once for all so that we would be sanctified. 
And from our text today, Christ has offered a single sacrifice for sins so that by this offering, we would be made perfect for all time. Beautiful. For every God action, there's an equal God reaction towards us, if you will, as his people and as his children. And I was thinking about this as well. The gospel of Jesus is an incredibly particular gospel. It's not just a message of good news about a life in general. It's a very specific message about your life and about my life and the life of the person who's sitting next to you. It's about people. The gospel is about individuals. It's about specific lives in specific moments of history. Redemption is intimately personalized, you guys. Sanctification is intimately personalized. We have to get past this this barrier that we sometimes have that when we hear the gospel, we don't remember that it is for us. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not individual or as in individualism, but it's particular as in it's personalized for you. And of course, it finds its robust beauty in the body of Christ as those individuals come together in that expression of grace and freedom. And so with this kind of picture of the action-reaction view before us, I want to begin by pointing out that chapter 10 here marks a significant transitional moment within uh, the whole book of Hebrews. And then what I want to do is I want to pose a question in light of this transitional moment. This portion of Hebrews as a transition concludes the main doctrinal instruction of the book of Hebrews. So we're going to find now that all this time that we have spent going through the old covenant ways. He's going to transition now after chapter 10. As I said last week, he's been meticulously and systematically showing us that against the new way that is through Jesus Christ, the old system as a means for purification of sin is not only substantially inferior, but it is incomplete in what God had purposed for mankind. And the new, the new way through Jesus, having been enacted by better promises, having been executed by a better priest, secured by a better, more perfect sacrifice, completed in a better, more perfect tent, fulfills the old and takes its place, not just once, but as chapter 10 tells us, for all time. And the better means of this covenant can I just say, you guys, produces a better outcome as well? There is significantly, and I said this last week, a difference between worship in the old covenant and worship in the new. And can I say, you guys, we've got it way better. We do. We've read about the old. And just alone of the fact, again, that it could never fully take away the sins of the people. Today, it takes away every sin the single sacrifice of Christ. So in this transitional moment, the question that I want to insist that we ask ourselves is, what are the conclusions regarding ourselves that we should draw then from the first chapters? What conclusions should we come to that would then require us to pursue an understanding and an application of in our lives? What are these conclusions? How do we join this truth to our life? 
Everything more or less that has been said thus far has led us to this very moment that we find ourselves in. And, I, and he continues in answering this, this question of what conclusion, he continues in his comparison and contrast model that he has used, he being the writer all throughout his writing thus far. And so there's two verses that I want to focus on that are going to make the thrust of what I want to say here today. And they are verses 1 and verses 12 through 14. Put up verse 1 for me first. We're going to read it again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things. Man, can you guys say the good things? We are in the good things. We have received the good things. The benefits of his kingdom is what that means. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now go down to 12 and listen to the language. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And go to the next keynote for me. Just, I, I, I was reading these together as though they were part of the same thought and the same statement. And just read it again with me. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a beautiful summary statement of both the old and the new. And there's two words that I want to hone into this morning. And it's the words made perfect. In the first, in verse 1, in speaking of the law, he says, it can never make perfect. It can never make perfect. And then again in verse 12, he says, but Christ, he has perfected for all time. The law can never make us perfect, but Jesus has made us perfect. Say this with me, the law could never make me perfect, but Jesus has made me perfect. How many of you is that a hard statement to get out? Is it hard for anybody? Say it again, the law has, could never make me perfect but Jesus has made me perfect. That is a true statement. Hang your head on that. Lay your head on that pillow at night. Jesus has made you perfect. Amazingly, nine times in the book of Hebrews, this phrase made perfect comes up. In the beginning, it's in chapters two, five, and seven, it's used in speaking of Jesus. Now remember, keep my divine equation, which the name I, I can't remember at the moment. <laughs> What was it? God's sovereign something of motion. Some stupid thing that didn't make any sense. But keep that divine equation in your mind. The first three times that it speaks of being made perfect, it speaks of Jesus. Then the next three times it's presented to us, it's in speaking of the law and what the law could not accomplish. And then we find, 
after that, in the remainder of Hebrews, when make perfect comes alive, when it's presented to us by the writer, it's in the sense that Jesus has made us perfect. It's speaking of us. What was speaking of Jesus is now true in speaking of us. In the beginning, it says that Christ has been made perfect, that God made Jesus perfect. And the result of that, brothers and sisters, is that we have now been made perfect through our union with Christ Jesus by faith. What does this phrase imply? What does this phrase mean for us? The Greek word that's used in each of these instances implies being made complete or being finished. So what the, what, what the writer is saying is this, Christ was made perfect as a savior and as a priest so that we would be made perfect and complete in him. This is what sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. It's based upon a past work or action that is maintained and that continues through the present and into the future. There's no other world religion that looks back to something that was done as a significant identity marker for what currently is or what will one day be. It says to us, because Christ died, you have also died in him. Because Christ rose, you are also alive in him. Because Christ is made perfect, you are also perfect in him. You get this, you hear what I'm saying, I know. But I'm gonna keep saying it over and over again because the reality is, is the we don't actually believe this so often, that we have been made perfect. But let me just demystify it a little bit for us today. Because I don't want you to see this as something that you feel is unattainable for you in this present life. And I'm going to show you why this is God's perfect plan for preserving and safeguarding his people until he returns and brings us into our ultimate perfection, which is a state of glory with him eternally. So I want you to notice the language within verse, are you guys with me? If you're getting tired this morning, just stand up, you won't offend me. I'll probably be more offended if you fall asleep. So just stand up and walk around if you're getting tired, if my voice gets too monotonous. I'm really passionate this morning about what God is saying and I want us to grab a hold and I want each and every one of us to hear what God has for you today. Notice the language, thank you very much, I'm going to. Verses 12 through 14, I want you to notice the language. Present within these two verses are three tenses. We have the past, we have the present, and of course the future, which I think presents to our sometimes unbelieving heart the radical and the all-encompassing nature of our redemption. It is a past redemption with a present application and a future hope. All three of those simultaneously remain true at every point of our life in every second and every day of our life. Something has happened in the past which gives to us a present context and experience in life all the while looking towards our future hope. So the conclusion in this and what's said in verses 12 through 14 is that we were made perfect, we are made perfect, and we are being made perfect. Can those three statements be equally and simultaneously true? Go like this. Yes, they can. We were made perfect. 
We are being made perfect and we will be made perfect. How is that so? Let's take the first. In the past, it says this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. It's verse 12. Past tense. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sin, what did he do? It says he sat down, past tense, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, in verse 14, it says, he what? Has perfected. He has perfected, past tense. I think this is probably the easiest for us to wrap our hearts and minds around is this past tense and and for us to give our amen to, if you will, in our hearts because it's so often we look to our salvific moment, the moment of our salvation, the moment that we were saved and converted and regenerated, we can look back to that or we can think back to the cross of Christ and the sacrifice, that sin offering that was made and we can wrap our minds around the past tense of having been made perfect. It's also, I would say, of course, the most significant in that without it, none of these others would be true. If we hadn't been made perfect, we're not going to be made perfect right now at this current time. So the point is this, that through Jesus' willful and obedient act, listen, willful and obedient, of going to the cross, he has made you and he has made me perfect. And I love the language that the writer of Hebrews uses here as he's inspired to use this this, um, statement of he sat down. And as we were going through our book study midweek in terms of, uh, what's it called? None Greater. I couldn't think of it for a moment. It's a really profound book, and I don't remember the name. As we've been going through our book study of None Greater, it talked about how the Bible uses anthropomorphic language to communicate a particular point to the heart of a human reader so the question is did God really just sit down in heaven is God sitting right now on a throne no what's the point of Hebrews it's to show us a past action that has been completed there's a completion in the heart of God much like Genesis 2 when God rested on the seventh day did God take lay down and take a nap did he kick his feet up on the grand Tetons no It's to show that God completed his action and what God completed was good. That's why God uses, that's why the the Bible uses language that we can relate to. So that when it says that he sat down, what does it say? It is finished. It is completed. There is nothing left to be done. When Jesus had offered himself obediently and willfully on the cross as a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down because that sacrifice was sufficient. That sacrifice was complete. Which leads us to the next, which is both one and at the same time speaking of our present and future. It says that he has perfected past tense for all time those who are being sanctified. The Greek language which we see in this translation, if you were to look at it in the Greek, it's an intentional in its conveyance of a past perfect action that carries with it a present perfect reality. And those of you who are language and grammar scholars, which I am not, you could give me the word of whatever that is, whatever that tense is that speaks of a past perfect action with a present perfect application and reality to it. Having made you perfect through his atonement, so now, 
do you continue and remain in being perfect in Christ Jesus? What was once true is always true of you. See, this is the thing, you guys. We gotta get past the disconnect of our head and our hearts with these statements. He has made you perfect through Christ. So now you are perfect. And I'm gonna show you in a second that you are being made perfect even though you are perfect. The heck are you talking about? Get on with it. But the question is, why don't we always experience this truth presently in a perfect sense? And herein lies the great summary, description of the, of the Christian life. One Hebrews commentator says it perfectly this way, and I think I have it here for you to see. This is the Christian rule. We are to be what we already are in Christ. We are to be what we are in Christ. Since we are made perfect, we are becoming holy or perfect in practical ways. Holiness is our established destiny, and so it is becoming our present reality. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's the same statement. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. You were redeemed, you were made perfect in Christ through his once for all time sacrifice and atoning work. And so now today, you are to become perfect in him. You are to be conformed into the image of his likeness. You are to be conformed through righteousness and faith and grace and holiness in your life. This is what the Bible summarizes as being sanctification. You are to be what you already are in Christ Jesus. What, just like this mind-blowing reality. Is your mind blown with me? Maybe a little bit. In other words, we are being transformed into what we have already been made in Christ. Right now, we are being transformed into what is already true of us. This is the Christian life. Why then is it this way? It's because of our sinful nature. Because when we're born into this world, we're born with a sinful nature. When we are redeemed in Christ, he, he rids us of that sinful nature in terms of its power through the effectiveness of the cross and through the effectiveness of his atonement through the cross. And now by his grace, we are being transformed into his likeness. And this is what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, when he says, and we all, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, as we have our eyes fixed upon him, as we set our lives uh, in, in, in um, what's the nautical term? When we set the course of our lives towards Jesus Christ, as we behold him in the glory of who he is, it says that we are being transformed into the same image. Into this, what's the same? Into the image of Christ. This should speak so deeply, you guys, as to what our lives ought to look like. Are you being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ? Can you look back over the last two, three, four, five years and see a marked difference between who you were and who you now are? If you're not, then let me say this in love. You're not living to the fullness of what God has intended for you to live and experience in this life. 
He has predestined you in Christ to be conformed to the image of his son. And as you behold his son and fix your eyes on his son, you are transformed into his likeness. And what does it say at the end of that verse 18 of 2 Corinthians? For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. It's the spirit of God. As he says here at the end of chapter 10, Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And as I said last week, it's as the, the Holy Spirit through the veil bore witness that the old system was still in place when the veil was torn in two and the curtain lay on the floor, so too did the Holy Spirit bear witness that the new way is open to Christ Jesus. Today, that is the work of the Spirit. He bears witness even to the heart of the believer that the new way is open and that conformity into the image of Christ Jesus is at work in your life. And not only does he bear witness to it, but he enacts it. For the Spirit of God brings about, as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, the transformation. How does all of this happen? How does it all happen? Easy. Meditation on truth. Prayer and communion with God. Communion with each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we call each other to account and we encourage one another in what is true, like I'm doing with you today. And we remind ourselves that these lives that we're living are radically different than the old way that we once lived. Whether we have been raised in a Christian household or whether we came to faith just a month ago, the difference is no different. There is no difference. We all are being conformed in the image of Christ. We all have the Spirit of God who lives within us, who's transforming us. We all have the same and equal access by the Spirit of God to be transformed. The only difference is, are you pursuing the transformation? As, the, as the, that one commentator said that that Christian rule for living is that we are to be, we are to become what we already are in Christ. And he speaks of becoming holy in practical ways. Are you becoming holy in practical ways? And I don't have time this morning, but I considered speaking on why is it that we oftentimes forget these things? Why do we forget of these present realities of the Christian life that, I, that you are perfect and you're currently perfect, you're being made perfect and you will be perfect one day. Why do we forget this? And I thought of Peter on the, on the water in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus calls Peter to walk on the water and while he walked so courageously and faithfully for so many steps, what happened? He began to sink. And why did he sink? Because Peter fixed his eyes on the circumstances and the temporal things that were around him in that moment. Rather than having his eyes fixed on the eternal, rather than, as Paul would say, to fix your eyes on the things that are above where Christ is seated. Christ is seated. Fix your eyes on the perfection that is in Christ Jesus. Rather than Peter having his eyes fixed on those things, he looks to the circumstances that were around him. This is why we falter. So this isn't like a, a condemnation beat-up session. This is just a practical realize that in our life there are circumstances that are real and true that either require our fullest of attention at times because it's necessary or they become a distraction because the enemy wants to distract us. And the second thing I thought of is that the reason that we don't always very practically live in this reality is because as that commentator, the quote that I said, we aren't practicing habits of holiness. 
Are we going to God with prayers and supplication, with thanksgiving in our hearts, that in all things, it says, Paul would say in Philippians, to pursue, to bring unto the Lord Jesus Christ your prayers and your supplications with thanksgiving. So often we think of those two things as the same, don't we? Prayers and supplications, we look at that both as just prayer. I'm gonna go to God because in this moment I have a need. But are we really supplication with thanksgiving? There's an implied reality of the sovereignty of God. Our thanksgiving comes regardless of how God answers that prayer. Regardless of whether our request or our petition that is made in faith is actually answered the way that we wanna have it. So yet the writer uh, that Paul would say to us that those supplications ought to be made in thanksgiving because we are thankful that God hears our prayers. We are thankful that God cares about his children. We are thankful that the truth of scripture remains that God desires and pleasures in giving his children good things. And as we sang this morning, that his promises are true and he promises to finish what he started and etc., etc. and all of the promises that are within scripture, they all remain true. So our supplications are found within the promises of scripture and our thankfulness comes in knowing that God hears and God is sovereign and God is at work. But as I said, we don't have time to get into all that. Just finally, to wrap it up here, we're gonna take communion. I apologize, that was something else. I wanted to take communion in light of this and how I'm gonna land it. So again, he's speaking of the present. In terms of this present being made perfect, this transformation is what the Bible calls sanctification. It is the present tense experience of the Christian life, which is always, listen, the present experience of the Christian life, which is always inextricably linked to the work of Christ on the cross. Did you hear what I just said? I know our our little ones are coming in. Stay with me, I'm gonna land in the next couple minutes. The Christian life is always inextricably, it means inseparably linked to the work of cross on the Christ, the work of Christ on the cross. That's what gives context to all of our life. It's our reality and it attests to our being united with Christ and being made perfect. This is God's objective for you regardless of how old you are and regardless of how long you have followed him, you are to become like him in his likeness. And as Rick spoke of a couple of weeks ago and as the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews concludes this portion of chapter 10, he says this, that within this new covenant, the law is now written upon the hearts of men and women. And the spirit attests to our spirit that in which we have no choice now. Listen, we have no choice now, but as new creatures, as new creations of Christ to be conformed into his image. It's built into the lifestyle of a new creation to be conformed. It's not built into whether or not you would decide that you want to be conformed. It's inextricably linked to the cross of Christ that you would be conformed into his image. Do you see what I'm saying? The one leads to the other. So this whole idea of like, nah, I'm good. I'm just on this side of the cross and I'm pretty comfy right here. And I know that I'm going to be saved. That's baloney. That's wrong thinking. To think that we somehow have arrived at a point where we no longer need to grow or need to be conformed. That's baloney. 
We must pursue conformity into the image of Christ. To be in Christ is to be made in the likeness of Christ. That is the future tense. It's both present and future. Let's look quickly. Oh, do I have time? Ephesians chapter two. Yes, I do. It's just like four verses. Ephesians two. To be in Christ is to be made into the likeness of Christ. Say that with me. To be in Christ is to be made in the likeness of Christ. Say it again. To be in Christ is to be made in the likeness of Christ. Are you in Christ? Should you be made in the likeness of Christ? Ephesians 2.10, within that context, let's look at it together. Let's begin in verse six. And speaking of God in Christ, and he raised us up with him, Remember, to be in Christ is to be made into the likeness of Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And I was thinking, are these good works exclusively outward manifestations of the gospel to the unbelieving person? I think oftentimes, myself included, when I think of this text or when I've spoken of this text, it's that we are to have good works, that we are to perform good works that have been predestined in Christ Jesus. And so my question is, is when we read it through this lens of we are to be made into the likeness of Christ by our union with him, my question is this. Are those exclusively good works outward manifestations? Or given the context of verse 10, might Paul also had in mind good works which are in and of themselves obedient works that lead to personal transformation and conformity into Christ's likeness. In other words, were we predestined always to conform into the image of Christ through the performing of good works which are acts of holiness in pursuit of righteousness? I would say probably, yeah, they're both. That's probably what Paul had in mind. And so just to land it here, to bring it full circle and then to come to the Lord's table this morning, Hebrews 10 begins with this statement from the writer concerning the previous ways of the old covenant. He says this in verse three. And honestly, this is actually where I started in my own heart this week. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It struck me in such a way, brothers and sisters, that I wanted to focus my whole intent on this one verse this morning. And I felt like this is where God wants us to grow in faith today. Just as the priest's sacrifices, put it up, would you please put the statement up on the keynote. Just as the priest's sacrifices stood as an ongoing reminder of Israel's sin, so now does Christ's sacrifice stand as a constant reminder of our holiness. As we are seeking to be made perfect in this life and to continue to be made perfect until Christ returns. Let's let the Lord's table be a constant reminder, not just of what Christ has done, 
but as a reminder of our current state, of our union in Christ Jesus. And just as those sacrifices were meant for the Israelites to always be a reminder of what could never be taken away, this table is a reminder of what will always be true of us, that we have been made perfect in him. And I know that we don't always feel like we're made perfect. And I know that we don't always act like we are being made perfect. But in those moments, let's look to Jesus. Let's look to the table of the Lord where the reminder always stands just as he now stands before God in perpetuity on our behalf. So this table stands, at least in this lifetime, as a constant reminder of what we are being made into. May we pursue this perfection by his grace in faith and in the beauty and joy of Christian community. Let's encourage each other all the more. Next week, as we look at the second half of chapter 10, we're going to see then the practical aspect of what this means. And the writer of Hebrews is gonna use this beautiful statement to speak now of what could never be true of the people of old that is now true of us and how we are to respond to this present reality.